You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast. Your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I listen to them right here because I'm making it. Uh, today, we are hopefully cracking open another beer that was sent to us by listeners. This is sort of a running theme. We've got a big old backlog of beers that folks have sent us that are aging uh, wonderfully here in our office <laughs> in downtown uh, Los Angeles. And we need to crack open quite a few of them. Uh, what do we have today? Today, we are opening a beer from Android Theory. This is Antithesis Blue Kamikaze Cocktail Variant. And this is coming to us from Jerry H. He uh, hit me up on uh, untapped messages and was asking about Android Theory and said he was going there and was going to send one out to us for the show. Seems like it should be pretty fresh. I'm very excited for this. It is a Goza. That's 3.9%, 6 IBU. And it's described as a sweet blend of mixed berries, orange, papaya, and guava. Now, this label is pretty intense. I know Android Theory has some pretty gnarly, yes. like, metal, mm-hmm. sa- mm-hmm. satanic-looking It is definitely... So, yeah, uh, uh, 2002 Kyle would have really, really appreciated the sort of, like, uh, metal band black T-shirt look that it has going on on its labels. And I still very much dig it. I think my major disconnect with... Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying not to say Android Theory. Adroit Theory. Oh, is... ad- did I say Android? No, 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 no. Did no. I say Android? You were correct. Okay, good. I, ke- I keep thinking Android. Ad- oh, right, yeah. right. Um, my major disconnect is that this is a 3.9% ABV 6 IBU Sour Goza that is uh, a, a lot lighter than most of the Adroit Theory beers that I've had before, which are typically like... You know, 100 IBU double IPAs that just blast the palate and, you know, completely destroy any semblance of of taste buds that I would have had still on my tongue left after, oh, who knows how many beers. But at, at this point, I'm very excited to try this. I'm curious. The way that they name their beers is also very interesting. They have typically square brackets around the variant or the version or the batch of adroit beers yeah because you had one a while back that was just like blah 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 bracket blah 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 version blah 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 exactly like, <laughs> it, it got a little intense it's it's definitely not semantic versioning of beers uh if if you if there were ever to be one i guess but it's kind of interesting to see that it's a cocktail variant kind of going off uh a couple shows ago when you did your that was last last show uh, you know i can't lose track, track anymore yeah. no i get it so the examples that you brought up uh, were AK and then in yes uh, square brackets Chaos Warrior Edition. So this was an edition, not necessarily like a variant. And then in parentheses, another another sort of parenthetical Ghost Six Four Six. They did that same thing for Ghost Six Two Three, which is another uh, New England style IPA that I had from them. But both have been New England so far that I've tried from Android Theory. So. Curious to try uh, something this completely one. different. Yeah, exactly. I like it. All right, let's get it open then. This color is very interesting. Uh, I would go. It may be your the the color of your shirt, your red ish shirt, playing with it, but it's got kind of like this strawberry uh, color to it, sort of like a, a, a very semi hazy. Look. Plum. It's like a light plum. Plum. It is very plum. Reminds me of plum wine. Okay. A little bit. It's kind of it's kind of a light purpley, like a cross between a purple and a pink, but toned down a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a very cool color. Like a cross between a purple and uh, like a grape and a strawberry starburst, if you were. Right. Almost no head as you poured it. Just very, very mellow. I get a couple of bubbles forming at the bottom, but otherwise just... It seems kind of like classically Goza, uh, what I would expect it to look like. I get a lot of fruit on the nose. And kind of a Kool-Aid sweetness almost. It is kind of like Kool-Aid. Um, right when you pour the Kool-Aid powder straight into uh, cold water, it does kind of have that like almost overly uh, smelly kind of like sweetness to it. A little nostalgic. Yeah, that's that's curious. Now, what what makes this the cocktail variant? Why? What what about this? What's giving it color? What's what's kind of causing us to go so like sweet and fruit forward with this? It says it's a sweet blend of mixed berries, orange, papaya, and guava. Um, 
Holy smokes. Now, a blue kamikaze is a type of cocktail drink. I don't know if that's what lines up here, but that's vodka, curacao, and um, lime juice. So that doesn't seem anywhere near what this would be. But those berries, they definitely stand out and give it a really nice, really nice color. Like reddish color, yeah. Yeah, as far as the, the flavor, it's super mellow. Wow. But when you said Kool-Aid, though, that's kind of I'm I'm getting some some like residual brain activity on on the whole Kool-Aid idea. I don't and I don't I don't want I feel like saying somebody's beer is like Kool-Aid is going to be a negative. But uh, I'm sure I'm sure some folks have said we're drinking the Kool-Aid with some of these beers. But this is definitely not very literal. <laughs> I think my expectation of this is I was expecting a lot sweeter it is still sweet still very sweet but the salt that it's trying to balance that sweetness out with of a typical goza is kind of savory in a weird way for me it's it's almost like um almost like a tart like a fruit tart when you get one that is made with not too ripe fruits Mm. uh, maybe like a strawberry or a berry or blackberries or things like that where they weren't really picked at their prime they're kind of still a little sour a little tart and it's balanced with sort of like cheesecakey uh savoriness i'm getting a little bit of that and want to i would make this a dessert beer this is like an instant dessert beer for me i would love this with lactose as well i know of course you would well Eh, I, I have had dessert beers. Uh, Galaxy Pop, I think, is one that I've checked into before um, from Grimm, who make a, a whole number of the pop series, but tend to balance out their Goza-style beers with lactose to sort of smooth them out and make them a little less abrasive. This is not at all abrasive. I mean, this no, is no. easy drinking, super, super sweet, um, again, like very dessert-like to me, and I would... I would cap off a meal with this anytime. And as far as goes as go, there's not really any sour to this at all. It really is very sweet with kind of that natural sort of pucker that you would get from some of these berries, but Mm. very mellow and very balanced with only a tinge of salt. It really leans to me more into that sweetness zone, uh, more into just like almost a juice. It really is along those lines to me. Yeah, this is very curious. I'm wondering... With the way that the label was created, um, if this whole series is uh, labeled one way with that, that, you know, front label kind of has the the sort of like pentagram look uh, going on it, but is, you know, relabeled cocktail variant or, you know, what, what other variants are available for this, this antithesis uh, series? quite a few in fact um there's 75 entries on their website i would love the red punch edition please yes uh, mango blood orange tripled there's a mojito cocktail goza oh come on need that zombie cocktail malibu bay breeze goza yeah so this is definitely more of the it's their their goza um variant on a lot of different sort of cocktails it feels like here mm-hmm. and as as much as this doesn't even remind me of beer it's very good. I don't really know what else to really feel about it. It is so not beer adjacent to me that it's like it's like a it's like a it's like a berry soda with a little salt at yeah. the end. Yes. Um very much like a cocktail. What I would expect sort of a, a cocktail to be a like a light fruity even a beer cocktail, like something yep. where you're mixing sort of fruit juices and uh trying to bring out floral and sweet characteristics and sour from the the fruit itself by mm. pairing it with sort of a a backbone of of beer like flavors well i'm definitely a fan so jerry i want to thank you very much for sending this over to us um I, it's really it's really interesting the color is beautiful the flavor is something that i've never had before i think you can agree to that yeah um and very excited to be able to try something something that we don't normally get the idea, I think, is that it's sort of pog juice like pine- pineapple orange guava, um, and I, I for sure think that that is what's contributing to sort of my um, <laughs> punch slash Kool Aid uh, vibes. I'm getting real hard off this. I, I really like it. It's kind of hard to put down, to to be honest. Like I'm, 
at first I was like, oh, weird saltiness, funky, funky saltiness, but not, it's mm, mm-hmm. it is super grown on me. Oh, yeah. Have any of you had the chance to try Blue Kamikaze cocktail variant from Adroit Theory? You should definitely let us know what you thought. Uh, let us know what that flavor really reminds you of, because it's giving us a lot of flashbacks and, and good ones. And it's really quite tasty. And I'd love to know which one to check out next, too. Uh, because there are so many in this series that I I think sound really good. Ones with jalapeno, you know, just very, very different. If you have a recommendation for us, you should let us know. You can tag us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, we are at Untapped. Let's move on to our Style of the Week segment and take a look at this week's featured beer style. Here's Tim with more. This week, we are taking a look at the Hefeweizen. This is a style that really was one of my main gateway beer styles. I remember back when I first turned 21 and was working in an office and we went to happy hour at the local pub every afternoon. um, And I was just looking for something interesting to try. And I remember Pyramid Hefeweizen was the first go-to for me. That really got me into it. That that and um, I believe Fat Tire from New Belgium. Those were like my two big gateway beers. But the Hefeweizen really led me in. It was a very approachable, very easy drinking um, style that really got me started uh, because I was at the time admittedly too afraid to try something that was hoppy. And I just I didn't know anything about beer. So 100 percent the same thing for me. I pyramid. Same one, apricot ale, uh, the unfil- unfiltered wheat ale that they have mm-hmm. was, was for sure my gateway craft be- craft beer-ish type thing yes. to try and acclimate my palate to a, a somewhat like very slightly uh, hoppy beer with a lot of malt character. Hefeweizen is the more popular word among Americans for what Germans call Weissbier or Weizenbier. And we've actually talked about um, Weissbier in the past. They're very similar styles. In fact, they kind of fall under the same thing because really Weiss beer is just wheat beer and a Hefeweizen is a tangent of wheat beer. And I don't think I would call a beer coming from Germany a Hefeweizen necessarily. I I usually typically associate that with your Blue Moons or your, you know, sort of like domestic United States based uh, wheat beers. And that's where that's more where the term is popularized. So if you were to go and order a wheat beer in Germany, you wouldn't order Hefeweizen so much. You'd order a a Weiss beer or a Weizen beer. The style actually predates lagers and pale ales, which I think is super cool. Weiss beer, which means white beer, was initially used to describe wheat beers because they were paler in color to the typical beers that were brewed in Germany. Hef translates to yeast, and Weizen means wheat. Yeast in the name refers to the fact that this unfiltered beer remains cloudy thanks to the suspended yeast, which is really its most notable characteristic. The yeast also contributes unique qualities to the aroma and flavor of a Hefeweizen. Wheat beers were among those forbidden under the German purity law known as the Reinheitsgebot. Uh, established in 1516, it essentially only allowed production of beers with no adjuncts or barley grains so basically it was the the basic three water hops and um barley barley that was all you could brew your beer with under the law but due to the popularity of the weiss beer among royalty it was actually the first style to receive an exemption in germany from the purity law that's really interesting um i wonder what parts of the the industry were also at that time uh, moving not necessarily from barley, but also like, hey, we've got all this wheat. What are we going to do with it? Let's turn it into beer. That 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 would probably do us pretty good. So I there there may have been some something happening at that point where uh, either barley had a bug, you know, or uh, something something changed in that, and wheat was something that was way more readily available and was something that they wanted to make beer with. Yeah, well, to that point, uh, this variant wheat beer typically contains at least 50% wheat malts, uh, though some can actually reach a ratio of 70% wheat to barley. So hmm. maybe they just had a really good harvest. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the top fermentation style actually designates the Hefeweizen as an ale. Okay. So it falls into that classification. It's generally a crisp, drinkable brew with low to moderate alcohol content. The Hefeweizen style is particularly noted for its low hop bitterness, which is about 15 IBUs, and relatively high carbonation, um, which is considered important to balance the beer's relative, uh, relatively malty sweetness. Yeah, yeah, and I think I, we also probably associate it a lot with 
the kind of floral-ish and like you have here listed banana and clove flavors Mm -hmm. more in the fruit family and um, are definitely like your quintessential kind of Hefeweizen flavors. Definitely. That is says very true. Um, and I know like the banana and clove, that's something that I really notice a lot in Hefeweizens. And it's actually, they are noted, like you said, for being sweet and fruity. And those are two of the big notes that people tend to get from it. Um, I know one of the beers that I get the most like banana and clove from, I think I mentioned this before, is Sierra Nevada's Kellerweiss, which it's a, another variant in that whole wheat beer area. But if you've ever had that, you take a whiff like clove and banana just hits you in the face. And it's really nice. And I think I attributed that to esters last time coming from yeast. And in this uh, example, it's mentioning that it's the Hefeweizen's phenolic character. Yes. So I, from a, a scientific standpoint or from like an off flavor or whatever character is given there, I'm unsure about where, where that's actually coming from. It may differ from beer to beer, but specifically from Hefeweizen's, it's coming from its phenolic character. Its signature phenol is 4-vinyl guaiacol, a metabolite of ferulic acid, which is actually the result of fermentation by top-fermenting yeast uh, appropriate for the style. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with the um, the yeast that's being used in the top-fermenting. That's really kind of it's giving it this specific uh, phenol, which gives you that banana and clove sort of thing. Uh, some people actually even say that there's like a bubble gum or vanilla undertone. I can see the vanilla and not so much the bubble gum. You know, like, you know that the banana and clove scent. I feel like anyone listening has has smelled that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I I understand, I guess, in, in concept, the bubble gum flavor. You know, you do, it, it's sort of like your, your uh, big ballpark chewing gum mm-hmm. kind of flavor that you get from that. But. Um, I don't know if I've specifically experienced that in a Hefeweizen before. Now, it as is very clear at this point, it is a wheat beer, so it is heavy and it does have a rather full body. Uh, and, and Historically, the Hefeweizen first surfaced in the 16th century in Bavaria, which I feel like that's where a lot of like the, the wheat-style beers really originate from. Um, and eventually came to America with the wave of German immigrants in the 19th century. Although its popularity was diminished for a time by the rise of light beers on both sides of the Atlantic, which obviously we've talked about, you know, the growing of pale ales and just lighter, more um, clear beers mm-hmm. at that time in history. Uh, the sale of wheat beers began to rise again after World War II, especially in southern Germany. Again, that whole rebuilding of the breweries in Germany post-World War II, thus creating more things and more distribution and growing in popularity, which we've learned about on several other episodes. The Hefeweizen style is a staple for a great many American craft brewers today, where it's viewed as a lighter option that complements their overall portfolios. Now, I think that's very true and safe to say that almost Every brewery, and I, I realize there are very many that don't, but like in my head, thinking through quickly of all the breweries that I've been to, I feel like everyone has at least one variant of a wheat beer, whether it's a Hefeweizen, a Weiss beer, uh, something like that. Oktoberfest, you sure. know, something it, that, yeah. There's definitely, I see that as being a, a something that most places have. And now that I, I know there's a lot of talk about how juicy, hazy IPAs are kind of like a lead in for a lot of people into beer now because of their fruit forwardness. And granted, that might just be into the whole IPA family. But I really feel as though um, Weiss beers, Hefeweizens, all the wheat beer family, they're really a gateway for a lot of people, especially if you're trying to move away from something that's too light. You want something that's got flavor and body but isn't necessarily like a light lager or something like that. Or if you want to troll your friends on Instagram and pour a Hefeweizen (laughs) in a glass, say it is the latest hot, hazy IPA from whatever brewery, uh, this is the way to do it. Because they're kind of the original like orange juice looking haze in a glass. That's uh, a good point. Look. And I, I, I think it's it's one of those things that when you see a beer, it's like, oh, that is that is a beer. Like, especially in terms of what were gateways for both of us. Now, wrapping this up really quick, American Hefeweizens, they differ from their Bavarian counterparts in that they are largely brewed with the same yeast strains that are used to brew their pale ales and stouts. So instead of having to... Um, you know, head over to Bavarian area in Germany and pick up some yeast strains. You just use what you got lying around. 
Uh, American Hefeweizens obviously aren't subject to the strict German production laws, which gives them a little bit more leeway. Some brewers use a different strain of yeast than the German recipe calls for, which, you know, we just said. And others actually may add citrus or spices. I think there's a lot of I've seen strawberry Hefeweizens. You mentioned the apricot wheat beer from Pyramid. That's a pretty widely known one. Uh, But, you know, that is that whole American craft beer ingenuity and change. So that's to be expected. Yeah, and I've had some probably pretty great Hefeweizens from American craft brewers, obviously. I think one of the ones that has stood out the most for me is Figueroa Mountain's Vice Vice Baby. (laughs) I think I saw that somewhere. Yep. So that was very recognizable uh, packaging on that. Came in a 12-ounce can. Very good, um, but was... Came in at forty IBU, so it's a little uh, hoppier than than what you might expect from from a Hefeweizen. Um, but I I really enjoyed that one. Uh, there have obviously been a whole bunch of others. They go so far as to um, mo- one of the more recent ones was a Centauri beer uh, from Tokyo Craft called Weizen. Um, that one I had on a beach in. Uh, Japan, which was just an otherworldly experience and obviously contributed a lot to its 4.0 rating on Untapped, but was still a pretty gosh darn good beer. There's there's something about the weather and and the vibe that a Vizen gives that uh, goes really well with the beach, I think. Yes, this is true. And looking here, I've got about 14 Hefeweizens listed in mine. Hey, same. Um, top ones being the Pyramid Hefeweizen and the Sierra Nevada Kellerweiss, uh, which I, those are the two I mentioned. Um, I also have Golden Roads Hefeweizen in here. That was one of their early beers back um, way back when they just started. Yes. That was a really solid one. And then sticking to the jokes with the, uh, the name and the haze, I ha- had one up in Seattle from Optimism Brewing Company. Great place, by the way. That's one of my favorite breweries uh, up in Seattle. I can go on about reasons about that. But they had one that it was called Partly Sunny, which is kind of funny because you got the golden haze sort of uh, feel. Okay. I like that. All right. Overcast almost. Yeah. yeah. And okay. I did have I did have the Vice Vice Baby. So. Ah, okay. From Figueroa. Yes. Yeah, I think it's one that is often paired with like watermelon sometimes. Um Oranges is a comp- common pairing. There's the argument over whether or not an orange slice is appropriate. Sure. sure. <laughs> we won't yep. go there, though. Um, Barley Forge down in Southern California does theirs kind of like mango-like uh, um, called Nom Nom. And that's that one's pretty good. Yeah, there's uh, obviously this is one of those categories that is an early craft beer in America um, and has been around for a long time and hasn't really changed all that much it does like you said kind of get a bad rap of a do you serve it with an orange or don't don't you do you serve it what do you serve it with but i think um as as i try more and i try these different kinds of beers from very well-known breweries like figaro mountain uh bootleggers anaheim brewing all the all those sort of like local places it's nice to see their take on a what is kind of considered a classic craft beer style. It's time again for Homebrew Untapped with our friend John Holzer from the Four Brewers podcast. Every other week, John's joining us to talk about homebrewing, offering up some interesting insights, conversation, and tips. Here's John with more. Hey everyone, John here from the Four Brewers Podcast, and I'm back for another installment of Homebrew Untapped. This week I wanted to try something a little different and pop the top off of one of the first beers I ever brewed as a homebrewer. This bottle of beer is likely in the ballpark of five to six years old at this point, and I honestly don't know what to expect when I open it. Will it gush? Will it taste like an Amazon delivery box that's been sitting in the rain for a year? Well, that's the fun of tasting beer, right? Before I open the bottle, a little bit of history about this beer. There isn't much of a story to it. I got the recipe from a book written by Sam Calgione of Dogfish Head Brewery out of Delaware. Basically, it's a saison with ginger and coriander. It's a very basic recipe that's great for newer homebrewers like myself at the time. This recipe uses dry or wet malt extract, which is what I used as a beginning homebrewer, a minimal amount of hops, and a yeast that has been my longtime enemy, White Labs WLP565. Why do I refer to this yeast as my enemy? It's a finicky yeast that tends to stall during the middle of primary fermentation. I remember when this happened with this batch of beer, and I was quite disappointed and worried that I did something wrong. In the end, it wasn't a big deal. 
I got the yeast back in action by adding a bit of wort into the fermenter along with a bit of USO5 dry yeast. The beer didn't ferment out as much as I'd hoped it would, so it's a bit on the sweeter side. I remember liking the beer back then, but I never got through all of the bottles, which brings us to where we are today. I had a case of bottles sitting in my closet behind a rack of clothes that I literally forgot about up until about a month ago when I was doing some cleaning. This beer is in the 6% alcohol range, and I never intended to sell her this beer. So without further ado, let's open this bottle and check it out. So when I first started out as a home brewer, I was recycling bottles from craft breweries and using them for my uh, homebrew. This bottle's from New Belgium Brewing. This is a Super Crew bottle, and the date on the bottle says 4-4-2011. So I didn't look at the date before I recorded this, so this beer's going on, what, eight years old at this point? So I'm really excited to see how this held up, so let's open this beer. Okay, well, it's not gushing, so that's a good sign. Okay, so right off the bat, um, this beer is looking much darker than it did when it went into the bottle. Uh, it was uh, it was a darker shade of yellow going in the bottle, and now it's more of a light copper shade, so that immediately tells me there's some oxidation on this beer, which I am not surprised about one bit. As far as the head goes, it's uh, got a very, very thin white head that burns off pretty quickly. Let's see what it smells like. Okay, so that does not smell good at all. That smells like wet cardboard and honey, basically. Uh, it's got a very, very sweet aroma that's very, very cardboardy. That's the best way to describe it. Um, it does not smell good at all. So um, I'm a little afraid to try this, but let's see what it tastes like. Yeah, that's pretty much what I expected. Um, it tastes like cardboard. It tastes like sweet cardboard. It's actually dried out more in the bottle. It, it finishes like very dry, even though it does have an adequate mouthfeel. Um, this beer is also very cold right now. I do not want to let it warm up because I think even more flaws will come out in this beer. Overall, this beer did not hold up well. I didn't expect it to hold up well, and I'm going to have to just dump the rest of the bottles that are sitting in the back of my closet. So there you go. To wrap things up, there are two things I took away from this beer that have nothing to do with how it held up over all these years or how it even turned out as a beer. First, brew the smallest batch of beer you can without compromising the quality. Even as little as one gallon is enough to experiment with a recipe before stepping up to five gallons, 10 gallons, or even a half barrel. It's a real bummer when a beer turns out to be five gallons of sadness that you can do nothing with outside of using some of it to brine a turkey for Thanksgiving. Second, learn from your mistakes and move on. When the fermentation stalled in this beer, the first thing I did was consult the internet on why it stalled, only to find out that this yeast strain is notorious for stalling. It's a great Saison strain, and you can get tasty results if you know how to treat the yeast. But for me, I'd rather stay away from it and use a yeast that's not going to make me work more. Do you have any unintentionally cellared beer lurking in the depths of your closet? Have you tried it? If so, how did it hold up? Let me know by hitting me up on Twitter at at 4 Show. And until next time, this has been Homebrew Untapped. You can catch more from John and the whole 4Brewers crew over at 4Brewers.com. That's 4Brewers.com. Or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to show off your love of Untapped? Check out our online store and pick up Untapped branded glassware, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. Go to store.untapped.com and enter the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you'll get 20% off all orders. That's store.untapped.com, coupon code podcast, to get 20% off. All right, let's take a look at some of the interesting beer articles that we found this week. Our first article is coming to us from craftbeer.com, and this, this one could get a little, this one can get a little hot little heated okay it's no flights zone how one brewery is taking a stand against trying them all all right yes i get it i definitely get it i think i as an untapped user i am probably one of the worst offenders of this i will typically go with a group of friends to a brewery and say one of everything please and they'll pour up 16 tasters and that's gotta be a nightmare for the folks working the bar. It's got to be, right? I mean, you're it's great for margin cuz you're charging probably 250, maybe $3 for a 4 ounce taster. Pretty good price unless you're doing a flight and those tend to be like 10 bucks yeah. for for four. So, overall, I know I'm a I'm a terrible terrible offender of this, but I do like getting 
a taste of every single thing a brewery has to offer, not only for the leaderboard, <laughs> as, as it's as it's well known yes. uh, on on my own untapped profile, but kind of just you know as as someone who likes to try a bunch of different craft beer. Yeah, um, I think it's personally I love a, a good flight. Um, admittedly, I'm not great at picking my own, so I like when places have them pre designated. Sure, but same. It's very it's very cool to um, to be able to just try a sampling. And this article isn't so much about the stress or the strain that it's putting on the person pouring the beer, mm. but more on are you getting the full full essence of the beer that you're drinking to the point where you can actually make a judgment call? I agree. Um, and we'll get into, obviously, the points of the article, but it's it's difficult to make the distinction between are you getting the full uh, experience of the beer or are you getting the full experience of the brewery? And which one in that context is more important? If it's a place you've never been to before, is it the brewery? For when I'm traveling, do I want to try eight different tasters? I would say that it would be the brewery because I want to get a breadth. Uh, like I want to, I want to taste the breadth of what they offer. Or why make the distinction between the two, right? If you're having one beer from a place, does that help embody the brewery as much as possible? And and to the brewers, to the brewers' credit, I would say that yes, it probably does, and that's what they would want it to embody. But as a consumer, man, I want all those beers. I want all those uniques. This is true. So the article goes to say, how does one best experience craft beer? The success of small and independent brewers suggests that there are many takes on this question. No brewer has the same approach to brewing as another, nor do they necessarily approach each of their own beers in the same way. The result of the exponential approaches to making beer means you have a wide range of beers to choose from, which I think is well known and obvious with the amount of beers that are just out there and so many breweries making so many different things. This choice and variety of craft beers is a boon for the beer lover, uh, but also presents apprehension for one brewer who believes the subtle nuances of each beer offering gets lost in a tradition that most beer fans expect at every craft brewery, the sample flight. Now, I don't think it's an expectation. I if, I do. Really? I If I go to a brewery, I expect there to be samples. I've been to some that don't. Samples, yes. I, I think it's a, a mark of someone who is letting you try a beer before you buy a pint. That is sort of the point of a taster, I think, in, in those terms. But when it comes to like, hey, I want uh, four ounce pours of six different beers, I understand their apprehension on like, you're going to try this Kolsch and then you're going to move to our bourbon barrel aged, you know, imperial stout. And you're not going to be able to tell the nuances between the two of those. And then you'll go and drink the double IPA and you won't you'll think that that one's garbage because you just tried a bourbon barrel aged stout. <laughs> so they're trying what they're trying to do is curate your experience, try and make it like exactly what they would uh, intend for tasting the beer for the first time, I think. So I, I get it. Yeah, that's that's fair. It's it, for me. It's not an expectation that they have flights, but it is an expectation that they'll let me try it. That's that is for sure a given. This is true, and that's kind of the point that this um, brewer is trying to make. They say five ounces is the smallest portion we will pour for a customer, says Gene Kitayama, uh, as we know that it takes more than a sip to truly taste a beer. Now, Gene has run Haynes Brewing Company for the past nineteen years, along with co-owner Paul Wheeler. The brewery has a strict no-sips policy and does not offer taster flights. They fear that the business of beer has negatively affected the enjoyment of craft beer. Consumers want to compare beers and switch back and forth between brews within a flight, yet, one, flavors linger and mix on their palates, which okay. is what you're mentioning, and I totally get that. Right. And two, carbonation and character change uh, at different rates, so they're all kind of... As they sit out, they're all becoming slightly different beers. And three, flavors change with temperature, which we know. Those are kind of the points that the brewer is trying to make here. The brewery wants consumers to fight their FOMO, not by ordering all of the beers on a flight, but to make a choice and appreciate each of their beers on their own merits. I think to our point of previous episodes as well, um, I think consumers are not wanting to get completely demolished at one brewery. Uh, two pints in that may be your limit, right, in terms of ABV. And so when it comes to wanting a flight, you're wanting to kind of get a little bit more bang for your buck. You know, you want to try everything that they have to offer because everything's limited at mm -hmm. these real small breweries, right? You're trying to say like, hey, I want I want to be able to try all the limited things that you have. But if I have two pints of your lager and your hef, 
on on draft, that's it. I'll never be able to move up to your double IPAs or your I, I was just at a brewery that had, I think, 18 beers on draft. And there's no way that I'm going to be able to try all those. Well, I think this is also fostering you coming back to the brewery and trying those at another point as right. opposed to just getting it all over with on your first visit. Yes. The the completionist mentality when it comes to craft beer and trying <laughs> uniques, yes. I think, is, is, is somewhat fostered by the untapped community, but also in an effort to find something that you like. And so if you are not really a craft beer aficionado and you've had maybe only a few in your in your craft beer lifetime, you know, a flight is a great way to find a thing that you may never have found before. If you know that you like lagers, great. Go for a pint of a lager. But yes. if you don't know if you're going to like this dry hopped with Galaxy uh, or even a great way to to try different hops in a single hop series is to do a flight of them and, and compare them back to back. There's so many caveats to this. I get the overall point, but I think there are so many caveats to this that make it it's the reason why sometimes folks think that craft beer is not approachable, because if you have to drink a whole pint to enjoy a beer. Maybe a whole pint is your alcohol limit for an entire day and that's it. Like you can't you can't enjoy anything else. This is true. It makes it it no longer makes it a social event. It makes it a very I'm I'm here to drink a beer and, and that's kind of it. It's tough. It's really tough to 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 balance that. And and it's hard to also take a stance one way or the other because I see I definitely see both sides. Yeah. Gene also says that uh, they've put out a rack card called It Takes More Than a Sip with three steps explaining aroma, appearance, and savoring the flavor. So they're really, they're really taking a stand on this. I love that. Yeah, it's cool to try and inform people of the ways to fully enjoy. No great beer experience is the same, nor can such experiences be duplicated. Haynes Brewing is taking a stand to do what they can to control their end of the bargain, offering beer of high quality in the way they intended. So they're, they're, they want you to drink the beer that they made the way that they want you to. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Sometimes people want you to experience their art the way that they created it. And, you know, creating beer is in a way an art form. Uh, and it, you can argue you can argue that you want to experience things the way you want to. But maybe in like a large chain restaurant or, you know, something something that's a little bigger but when you're going to say a smaller brewery, there's a little bit more leeway for that. Yeah, and I think there there is definitely a point of diminishing return for the brewer as well, where you drink five ounces, but anything beyond five ounces, you're kind of getting the same experience. Let's say um, this is a case for tasting menus by chefs or things like that, right? Where I don't need. 16 ounces of steak to get the idea that you can make a great steak, <laughs> yes. right? I, I don't need yes. a 48 ounce, you know, big old hunk of meat. I need your your very like petite, small round of very hand selected beef to know that you know what you're doing. You have a particular point of view on how you think this should be consumed and what your flavors are and things like that. Um, but there, again, point of diminishing returns where... If I have one bite of that, I might think it's spectacular, but I kind of have to have two or three to sort of like balance that whole thing out. And the first bite completely cleanses my palate and is great, a great experience. But it's that second one and that third one that layer the flavors and add to the complexity and hopefully kind of like hammer home that brewer's point of like, this is what it should taste like. This is what I intended for you to drink. Yes, I, and I completely see that analogy, too. For many beer enthusiasts, their policies may seem tough, but Hainsbring insists that they are not negotiable and that the brewery will remain a no-flight zone. Beer lovers have really become consumed by the anxiety of missing out on the experience others are having. I mean, FOMO in the beer world is a real thing with lines for releases and all that stuff. And, you know, there's no difference in the tastings. You want to try everything that someplace has and not miss out on anything. Picking them all has really become a normal decision in regards to flights, but by having them all, Haynes believes that the experience is diminished altogether. I'm going to bring up, I think, a flight that embodies a perfect way that the brewer intended for the beer to, to be had. I think I just had one at uh, Trustworthy out in Burbank, California. They had, and I, I made this myself, they, didn't, they did not intend for it to be had this way, but it was their uh, Trustworthy IPA four ways. 
It was on Nitro. It was on Cask. It with Amarillo hops, I believe. Uh, one another one was like dry hopped uh, at brewing, and then it was their straight up just you know IPA. Okay, now that I that makes perfect sense to me because. It's like, it's sort of like getting a dish where they're like, ah, oh, here's cauliflower three ways. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I get the idea. Like you, you know, here's here are them back to back, and you're for comparative reasons, you're having them this way. And I, I think for me that was one of the best examples of like why a flight is useful to you know really hammering home the brewer's point of like these are all very different and I want you to try them kind of how they are. That way of handling a flight makes so much sense to me because it, it, it you're not going to wreck your palate um you're not going to like you're not going to drink a double IPA and then try and move on to something more subtle or to a stout you're you're having the same general like flavor profile just with slight hints. And I mean, to be honest, it's not going to this this does make sense. And I see both sides, but I'm still going to order a flight. And if I like something from that flight and I'm not one who doubles back, I go one at a time all the way. So I finish one and then I move on. I don't I'm not one to like try and then move back and compare. Mm-hmm. Um, if I find something I like, then I'll go and I'll order a pint. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll follow up usually with a, a pint of the one that I like the most. Our next article comes to us from brewbound.com. Oscar Blues Brewery now offering a resealable crawler. I also want to give a shout out to Jerry H. who sent us his Adroit Theory. He sent this article to me as well, um, and I thought it was really interesting. Now, we talked a couple episodes back about mm-hmm. resealable cans are starting to there, – there are a few different variants. There's a really good one that we talked about, um, and they're going to try and you know start making their way into the marketplace. But it looks like um, Oscar Blues uh, resealable crawler is already there. So since Oscar Blues introduced the crawler in 2012, uh, discerning breweries, tap rooms, and to-go beer venues have been canning draft beer on the go in recyclable crawler cans. Now, interestingly enough, Oscar Blues was the first to introduce the crawler, and I didn't know that until I read this article. Wow. All right. Now, beer drinkers in all 50 states can enjoy the benefits of the crawler, which in itself is a registered trademark, apparently, and in all caps. So if you, if <laughs> I guess maybe we need to, um, in the app have just Crowler in all caps with a registered trademark at the end. Uh, Now beer drinkers in all 50 states can enjoy the benefits of the Crowler with the introduction of the resealable Crowler can lid. Uh, A Crowler is a 32 or 25 ounce can filled with fresh beer at the source uh, and then, you know, capped off right there. It's become a very popular um, way to get beer home from a brewery. Um, To me, a Growler is just too much. Um, you know, you get how many, how many pints do you think you, I could do some math, but let's say 64 ounces in a growler, yep. you get like three to four pints, four, yeah. yep. um, a crawler, you're getting probably about two, two or so, which yeah. I think is far more manageable. It is. And I, I think my first, uh, experience of a crawler was, or at least a crawler sized vessel was not taking beer home from a brewery. It was uh mission. Brewing in San Diego made a 32 ounce crowler sized uh, can for their IPA and their double IPA. And but it wasn't filled at the source. It was, it was not. It was just oh, available. That's it was, funny. It's sort of a really wild way to to package a beer and absolutely not a beer that I would have had myself because it's more than a bomber, right? It's another 10 ounces more than a bomber. So yeah. it's a, it was a lot more than I would have been willing to purchase at, at one time for anything but like a party or, you know, a, a gathering. Yeah, exactly. And as we just said, available at breweries and beer venues across the country, crawler cans allow beer fans to take draft beer to go. And until recently, crawler cans, they had to be enjoyed fully uh, once they were opened. Because unlike a growler, sometimes you could seal a growler up tight with the screw the cap back on. It'll keep for a little longer. But once you pop the top on a, a can, which is a crawler, you're you're set to finish it right there. Sure. Or you've got like a, you know, a growler works style thing with the CO2 built in and mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The resealable crawler can is simple to open and reclose with just a quarter turn. It also has an easy-to-pour opening. Thanks to a development from Dayton Systems Group, breweries in all 50 states can now serve crowler cans using resealable technology. We get off on pushing the limits, doing things differently, and resealable crowler is another step of innovation to take advantage of what the can package has to offer from behind the bar, said Jeremy Rudolph, the man behind the Crowler integration at Oscar Blues Brewery. We're excited to be collaborating with Oscar Blues on the next generation of innovative packaging. The resealable Crowler brings a valuable new 
option that offers a container that's easy to open and reseal without compromising freshness, says uh, Brad Bachman. He's the president of DSG. Now, the DSG cap contains an oxygen scavenger to help maintain the beer's freshness, uh, something we know is of premium importance to craft brewers and beer drinkers. An oxygen scavenger. That was that was one of those characters in Dune, right? One of the, They would just kind of in the sand. Seeking and, yeah. out oxygen, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this is this is pretty cool um, because now as much as you want, like you, if you get something really good in a crawler and you take it home, you're like, oh, shucks, guess I have to finish it. Right. And this kind of takes <laughs> away the excuse. So there's a negative there. But the positive is, you know, you can be a little more responsible. You can drag it out and enjoy it more later as opposed to just being forced right into finishing the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm I'm typically one of those who likes aluminum cans. I think the stigma is gone. Uh, the the best if not the most highly coveted craft beers out there are in cans these days and crowlers are no different. They keep the light out. They make sure that your beer is just as fresh as it was when it was poured at the brewery. And uh, same thing goes for this, this resealable uh, crowler. You probably want to finish it within a couple of days, right? It's going to open it once, kind of let that out and then finish it as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, I'm very sure. And from the sounds of it, um, if you have a crawler machine, this is really just the lid that's different. So you should be able to, as a brewery or a venue, you should be able to just get the caps um, to put onto your cans. Wouldn't look as cool probably if it was, I guess it what it seals the top the same way, spins. You've seen the crawler machine, right? It's, yeah, it goes spins around. around. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just cool. the way that instead of popping it open, it's, it sounds like it just has a little slider. Got it. Very cool. All right, that does it for our articles, but we did want to wrap up on uh, one more note and try out one more beer that we finally got our hands on. Um, if you remember a few episodes back, and I'm sure if you're in the beer world or on the gram or any social network. The gram? Sorry. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I just, I'm not going to question you. You're 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 sort of our uh, social media manager, and I'm going to leave that alone. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> uh, if you've been on any social network at this point, you are well aware of Sierra Nevada's Resilience IPA campaign, working with over 4,000 breweries across the country to brew the Resilience IPA using roughly the same recipe, and then donating all of the proceeds back to the Campfire Relief Fund which uh, Sierra Nevada started to help uh, with uh, relief for those affected by the terrible and devastating campfire in Northern California. Now, the the collaboration there was for all those breweries to brew their own, sell it on premise. But Sierra Nevada did um, take their version of it, which was, I assume, you know, the original. And they packaged it and they released it in um, 12 ounce cans uh, in six packs, I believe that was the only um package size that they did and distribution did take a little longer than i think was expected but i finally saw it start showing up i was checking i was checking the beer locator probably every three or four days on their website to see when it showed up in the area Um, and i finally found it and so we have the resilience uh, butte county proud ipa in can a 12 ounce can right here in front of us and it looks exactly like uh the label that's been going around that's been added to the beer on untapped so if you have seen that going around either on uh, sierra nevada's own beer if you've had that already or on any of the resilience beers that others have been brewing they've also been kind of branding it with this same resilience logo um it looks exactly like that and it looks great i i I like this 12 ounce size. I think it works really well. And I kind of like that, uh, that the Sierra Nevada vibe of very much like, um, the, like the, that shot in Yosemite yes. where you kind of like, are looking down the Canyon a little bit half it's, dome it's, off it, on one side. Exactly. It's got kind of that vibe to it. Oh yes, completely. And plus the fact that all of the profits from this beer are being donated to help those affected. It makes drinking it all that much better. Um, and for those of you who did not hear on a previous episode on untapped on our social, et cetera, et cetera, there is a badge for resilience IPA. Uh, so if you check into any variant or version of resilience IPA, um, on untapped from any brewery, um, I'm going to guess most of those who had it on draft in their tap rooms have probably run out by now because it was really like a small batch that a lot of places did. Um, and they were kind of trickling out as they had the ability to, and, the package version coming from Sierra Nevada themselves is probably going to be the most available at this point. Mm-hmm. But if you check into any beer uh, with resilience in the name, you are going to unlock our resilience IPA badge. So be sure to check it out, find the beer, 
enjoy it and unlock that badge because not only are you getting a good beer and a great badge, but you're doing a good thing by helping out to support that campfire relief fund. Now on that note, let's open this up. I funny enough, um, the second that you told me that you had purchased a six pack of this, I myself at the same time had purchased a six pack. So really the more that you can do, uh, to help support this fund, the better, obviously, I love beer. I love Sierra Nevada beer. They were the third most checked in brewery in all of Untapped in 2018, and so I think it's a great cause that they're doing here. And uh, and and if you're gonna drink beer, what better way to really kind of help support that community and uh, and the place that this was brewed in up in Chico, California? So let's do a synchronized opening. <laughs> now this is just a standard. Oh, man. American IPA. Uh, it is 6.8% ABV, 65 IBU. Uh, it was brewed using ale yeast. Uh, they used Chinook and Centennial for the bittering hops. They finished it with Cascade and Centennial. And they used two-row two pale and caramel malt. So both the bittering and the finishing hops, obviously very West Coast, very Pacific Northwest uh, heavy. And... Coming in at 65 IBUs and right around seven uh, for the ABV, which is just very classically West Coast IPA. Um, it pours with that sort of like West Coast amber color that you expect from this. Now, this is what this is what IPAs look like in my day. Yeah, yeah no, no kidding. No it's haze. Got, it's not golden. It's got right. that amber piney color. It's, it's <laughs> in terms of how it evokes the can art, I think it's just on par with exactly what I would expect from a West Coast IPA. It's kind of nice, like you said, to have something that is very classically West Coast, something very classically craft beer, and for it to go and support such a such a great cause. I have not earned the Resilience Badge yet, so I'm excited to check in and earn this. I was, I was trying to make it out to a couple of breweries that did it in L.A., and I just didn't make it. And by the time we got into the office last week to pick up the version that Carl Strauss did, they had already run out. So like you said, khaki sort of head, like real light, um, amber-ish color, more on, on sort of the malty-looking um, clear and it is just so good. It's it's very light and uh, drinking. It's not hitting me in the face. It's got that bitterness that you expect from a good standard IPA. It just really feels like, you know, going back going back to your roots. I'm gonna I'm gonna drink this from the can for oh, the yeah. rest of this. This, this. is this is not. I mean, yes, there there is a point at which uh, pouring this and enjoying it in glasses is, is kind of the way that you want to try a beer. But really, like the just straight out of the can is is how I'm gonna finish this one. Oh yes, this is this is one that you can knock you you can probably blow through a six pack in a weekend, especially doing some yard work. Yep. Well, on that note, show notes are available at podcast.untapped.com. And if you've got any questions for us or you've got feedback, we'd love to hear it. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at Untapped everywhere. And we'll be back next week for another episode of this podcast. But until then, cheers. cheers.